0: Which I've spent a whole sermon and maybe more showing that uh, Worldwide Church of God came after Thyatira. Herbert Armstrong, in fact, was somewhat involved with Thyatira uh, before branching off and starting uh, Worldwide Church of God. Called it radio at the time, but it's what became it. And it is now gone, it is dead. Uh, the name is even gone. It's been changed to a pagan Protestant evangelical name. And most of the people that were there are gone, and the doctrines of God that were there were, are gone. And as Ezekiel 17 clearly shows, and I have no doubt that is talking of the Church of God in the end time, uh, it has withered and died after having followed herbert armstrong and taken hold of him more him than god and then certainly departing from god and taking hold of the tocatchs more so than to god himself so i think it's become pretty clear and he also says that there is a remnant that is still alive of sardis so when you examine the death of herbert of herbert armstrong of he was the leader of it, but when you examine the death of Worldwide Church of God, uh, you find that there are still people around uh, who are alive and remain and still keep uh, most of the tenets of what we learned in Worldwide Church of God. There is no place here in the description of Philadelphia that says it has a remnant. Nothing. Nothing. But we clearly have a remnant of Worldwide Church of God, and he says he saved some names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and will be part of the kingdom of God if they overcome and grow. So, uh, we have seen the death and destruction of Sardis. Uh, We saw it blow up and go into pieces, and it does appear that those pieces morphed into the Laodicean era. And I've always said, since we even began this congregation, that we are part of the spewed remains of Laodicea. I've never claimed that we are Philadelphia, like nearly all the other particles of vomit claim that they are. So, let's examine that a little bit today. Go back over the Scriptures on uh, in Revelation 3, because it... Uh, What I want to get to through the feast is the true Philadelphia era, what it consists of, when it will be, where it will be, who will be in it, who will lead it, because so far it has not in any organized manner uh, that is notable in any way appeared. What we have is the remains struggling to stay alive of worldwide and the spewed vomit of Laodicea. Now let's notice, first of all, Laodicea, since Sardis, what remains of it, and that which is morphed into Laodicea that God spewed out, is what we are basically dealing with throughout what remains of the Church of God at the end time, with the exception of Thyatira, which is separate and still exists though it says it will go into great tribulation. Now, if Laodicea says, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, or beginner, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. So there will be a group of people following worldwide's death who are just kind of floating along, not really doing anything, going through the motions, keeping the feast, maybe, keeping the Sabbath, doing the things we learned in Worldwide Church of God, but not really on fire and not having their minds centered on God. Our minds, our emotions can be centered on a lot of things apart from God. Now, that doesn't mean we cannot have other things going in our lives like jobs and families and and even some recreations and hobbies and so on. But God needs to be very central to our life. Our spiritual life comes absolutely first. And we set aside everything else in order to serve God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. We allow nothing to get between us and God. That's why he said, you may have to leave father, mother, brother, children, husbands, wives, Lands and homes to come serve me. So, nothing on this earth in the physical realm is as important, even our own children, even our own mates, as God is. Our children cannot give us eternal life. Our husband or our wife cannot give us eternal life. We cannot give ourselves eternal life. We are all subject to death. So, It is incumbent upon each and every one of us to commit ourselves wholeheartedly, with no reservations, first of all, to God in heaven. He is the one we answer to. He is the one who judges us. He is the one who can grant us a change at the last trump and cause us to be God forevermore. Now, there's nothing that we can encounter or experience or have or be on this earth that is more important than that. If that does not happen, you will die eternally. He says, your heart will be where your treasure is. And that we are to seek Him with all our heart. So, what do we treasure the most? Anyone, anything on this earth? No. We have to treasure God most. And any time there is any question about what comes first or who comes first, we have to put God first. He is the answer to our deepest longings. Now, I say that to contrast, eh, don't want to go to services today. Do I really need to be at the feast? Uh, do I need to really pray today? I got to, boy, I'm so busy, I'm so behind. Uh, God will have to wait. Are we lukewarm? Do we let God be crowded out of our lives in any form or fashion? That is a lukewarmness. It is not an on fire desire for eternal life, and to please our Father and our brother and husband-to-be in heaven. Well, anything short of that is not fully acceptable to God. Now, none of us may ever totally achieve it in this lifetime, so I don't want to depress or discourage here. But what I'm trying to do is show the contrast between A more or less ho-hum, or a lot of things get in between me and God through a day, lukewarmness as opposed to being utterly on fire for God. He does not like a so-so, ho-hum, whatever attitude. That's one thing he liked about David. Now, David made a lot of mistakes. David uh, numbered Israel. He killed, he murdered, he committed adultery. He did a lot of things that are contrary to God. But boy, he was wholehearted. Whatever his hand found to do, he did it with his might. Unfortunately, his hand found Philistines to kill, and he did it with his might. Uh, And God did not allow him to build the temple because he enjoyed war and killing too much. God had allowed him to fight under the circumstances in which he lived. But David liked it too much. And killing is not something that is something to be enjoyed or a hobby or recreation, if you will. It had become that almost to David. But when he repented, He repented with his whole heart. Read Psalm 51 over and over and over again. We all need to. So, God is after hot. He'd even prefer us to be cold than lukewarm. Now, if you're cold, there's a chance you were never in the first place converted and may have only been going through the hoops. And it's easy to determine what to do with that which is cold. Cold and dead is dead. Or needs to be converted later, or whatever. But lukewarm would imply that we're part of it, but we're not committed to the hilt. That's what we have to be. And because of that because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will spew you out of my mouth. And he has certainly done that to the end time church of God Sardis which became Laodicea. Now, Thyatira, church of God seventh day and the seventh day Adventist church have already been consigned to the tribulation. Uh, now Laodicea is also consigned to the tribulation. Let's read on. Because you say... Now, a lukewarm attitude is part of it, but there's more. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods. I am the Philadelphian. I am the one that God has nothing bad to say about. I don't... He doesn't say anything bad about Philadelphia, so he must not say have anything bad about me. Okay? And therefore, I'm okay. Well, You other guys out there, you're all Laodiceans, but I'm a Philadelphian. If you're in my group, you're Philadelphian. If you're not, you're Laodicean. So, as a matter of fact, nearly all groups recognize that nearly all groups are Laodicean. Right? Right? They are the only exception. So they're 99% right. Nearly everybody is Laodicean. That's why we got spewed. It depends on whether we're a little, big, little piece of spittle or a piece of unchewed corn. It doesn't matter. Well, anybody who thinks there's, they're A-OK and their ticket's punched for a place of safety just by virtue of which group they're in, uh, are in trouble. I have need of nothing and know not the truth. Total self deception. I'm A OK, I'm a Philadelphian, everything's going to be all right. And God says, That's your attitude, but you have no clue that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked, spiritually speaking. We have no problem knowing when we are poor physically. We have no problem knowing if we are blind physically and cannot see. And most of the time, we even know if we're naked. Spiritually, though, we don't. We can be so self-deceived and not even have a clue of it. And that's where everything, basically, that is left of worldwide is today. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. In other words, Laodicea is going into the tribulation. Thyatira is. Sardis is dead and pretty much gone, except for a few names that remain. And then Laodicea, all that which came out of worldwide, with a few exceptions, which we'll get to, are going into the Great Tribulation. So he says, By gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, spiritually rich, and white raiment, righteousness, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. Remember the wedding ceremony and the one that shows up without wedding garments on? The white garments of righteousness, boot it out. We don't want that nakedness to appear. So anoint your eyes with ice out that you may see. You need to spiritually see. We've got to do something. We've got, we've got to clear the murk out of our eyes and see the truth. And that is hard to get people to see, since they are the one and only chosen true group and everybody else, this this I'm reading applies again to everybody but them. So we need to use some eye salve on our eyes and wake up, hopefully, and have righteousness, maybe without going through the tribulation, because there are some who will be called out of it and spared. We'll get to that. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten... Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So even though they go into the tribulation, for the most part, there is opportunity there to earn gold tried in the fire and to have the garments made white and righteous and still be in the kingdom of God. That is shown, let me go back to Zechariah. Is it 12, I think? Thirteen, uh, Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, says the Eternal of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass, and all the land, says the Eternal, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. So, he's going to smite the shepherds, And we'll have a lot to say about the shepherds later on as we understand how this story comes to pass. But the third shall be left, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Eternal is my God. And the next chapter, then, is of the return of Christ. So, this is speaking of the time just before Christ returns, where these people, the whole group, basically, will be scattered, and then they will go into tribulation and be tried there, and a third part will apparently repent. So, out of Laodicea, God will apparently bring one-third through, having repented, and will be part of His kingdom and the bride of Christ. Two-thirds, apparently, will not. Now, were they really converted? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, They might be in the second resurrection, but going through all they're going to go through, only one-third are going to repent and turn righteousness at that time. Verse 20 of chapter 3 again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So that shows he'll be at the wedding supper. He'll be invited in to the wedding sup. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So that means he'll be there as part of the bride of Christ. That third who repent during the tribulation even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. So there you have Thyatira who will go into tribulation, Laodicea that will go into tribulation, and that leaves one group in the middle of all this that he has something else to say to. So let's go back now and look at Philadelphia again in a little more detail, perhaps, and then see where it goes from there. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. God has control. Christ has control. Man does not have the key of David. Christ does. He's the one that opens and shuts. Okay? I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. So when we start examining Philadelphia, we need to see a people, an organization, a A congregation, a church, who has set before it an open door that no man can shut. Now, I pointed out before that we used to think that was Worldwide Church of God. However, what open door for a calling work there was, was slammed in our face. And a man basically shut it. Joseph Tkach, he changed the doctrine back to Protestant, pagan, Babylonian doctrine. According to Zechariah 5, two unclean birds, that's two Tkachas, took the church back to Babylon and set it on its base there. That's what they did. And under them, it withered and died. Its name no longer exists. It's changed completely. And it is back in Babylon and paganism and satanic doctrine. So that door has been shut. Let me go back to Zechariah 5 just a moment. Not just quote it, but, but let's look at it here. I turned... chapter 5, and looked, looked lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll, a a scroll, if you will. They used to have, they didn't have books like we have, books with pages, they had scrolls that rolled up. So here was a scroll that was flying. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, well, I see a flying roll. The length thereof, 20 cubits, and the breadth therein. Ten cubits, same size as the ark uh, or the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. Then said he to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth, for everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off on that side according to it. So here's something that represented the law of God in the Old Testament, and anyone who denies the God of the Old Testament, Christ the Melchizedek, and does away with God's laws, is going to be cut off by the temple, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies of God, which contains the law. Lawbreaking, in other words, will cut them off. So any Protestant church that says the law of God is not in effect is cut off. He says he's going to bring Moses to the end-time church. We'll get to that. Well, Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. It represents what was built and placed before God. And there was not a problem with that covenant. There wasn't a problem with God. There was a problem with the people who would not follow the covenant. So God has made it even more binding today. And he's also given his Spirit that we might be able to obey an even stricter law. People say, well, the law in the Old Testament was, boy, that was just too hard. And it was hard, without God's Spirit, to keep his laws. But then, as long as you didn't actually do the deed, whatever it was, it wasn't a problem. Now, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount... If you even think it, you as well, as done it. Far more restrictive, far more demanding in the New Testament than the old. For those who say New Testament religion and Christianity is a walk in the park, it's easy. Don't have to worry about the law. Well, Christ talked about the law all the time, said keep it. But he said you've got to keep it even better in the spirit, not just in the physical. And I'll give you my spirit to help you do that. So it's even more demanding. But then the reward is greater too. He only offered them physical promised land. He has offered us eternal life if we accept the terms of the new covenant. So the old is still new. The old was just physical. Now it's spiritual. It's an upgrade. And we also have an upgrade, a comforter, A strengthener, the Holy Spirit, to help us do it. So he's offered us a tougher course, if you will, but he's offered us help, and he's offered us a much bigger carrot at the end, a much greater motivation to go forward and to have eternal life in the kingdom of God. So that Old Testament in this prophecy, book of prophecy in Zechariah. Is still very much a part of it. It's just been upgraded in the New Testament to be even more binding. Anyway, we'll be cut off according to the law. Verse 4, I will bring it forth, says eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, into the house of him that swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Now, Worldwide Church of God has been torn down on a spiritual level. That is, the people who were members of it scattered. The organization itself became something entirely different, which we'll read about here in a moment. And even the buildings are currently being torn down. I happened to visit uh, on a business trip down in Southern California. Oh, when was it? Two or three years ago. And I drove by the campus to just see how things look now. And as I drove by on Colorado Boulevard there, I could see a wrecking ball smashing the Arm D. Armstrong uh, Academic Center. So is this true or not? They departed from the law of God and even the brick and the mortar, the timbers, the stones are being consumed. It is not what it was. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. For so you see the wrecking and destruction and the judgment come upon that organization because it began to depart from the laws of God and say, grace, grace only. Even called grace communion or whatever the whole title is, I could care less. All right, now lift up your eyes and see what's going on. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth, a basket of harvest. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So worldwide became at one point, a worldwide organization. And here's a basket of fruit, a basket of the harvest, those called, if you will, into the church of God. A harvest. It's what you put in a basket. bushel baskets. you harvest vegetables, grains, fruits, whatever. So here's the harvest of God. Here's an ephah. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance to all the earth. So, all around the earth, there were those who were called. They were part of God's calling work through Herbert Armstrong, the former temple. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the basket of the harvest. So, here's a talent of lead. You've got this basket there with fruit in it, Harvest and a talent of lead. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. The door was shut. Worldwide came to be not much, and the voice was stilled. No more broadcast. No more television, no more trips around the world, no more growth. Instead, it withered and died on the vine, as Ezekiel 17 says. So its voice was silenced by a talon of lead shoved into its mouth. The door was closed. Can't be Philadelphia. Philadelphia, it says has a door open to it that cannot be shut. No man can shut it. But men shut this, they shut worldwide up. It was Sardis. Then lifted up my eyes, verse 9, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. So here are two women, perhaps two churches, if you will. uh, For they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they, That's an unclean bird. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. Not really connected to heaven and God anymore. And not even really connected to the earth because it basically had disappeared. Flew away, if you will. Then said I, the angel, the talked with me, where do these take the harvest of God that has been silenced? He said to me, to build it, a house in the land of Shinar, Babylon, and it shall be established and and set there upon her own base. Not God's base, her own base. So we had two unclean birds, lithicotches, who picked the church up, hauled it off, so that it wasn't really... Here on the earth anymore, and neither was it connected with God in heaven, but flown to Babylon and sat there amongst Protestantism. The story should be quite clear. Now, the context of Zechariah 5 is of the time of the gathering of the latter temple, and we'll see the two witnesses and the remnant that God is going to call out to do another work. We'll get to that in due course. Let's go back to Revelation 3 now. Because we see that worldwide had its mouth shut, the door was shut, it could no longer do anything. Hopeless, effete, doing nothing toward God, but trying to lead people back into Satanism. That's where it is today. But before Philadelphia, he says, I will open a door that cannot be shut. Okay? We'll get to that. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, and no man can shut it, for you have a little strength. It will not be big. It will be small. Fear not, little flock. It will not be large. It will be small. We'll get to an estimate of that when we get further into the story, is how small and what little strength it has. If kept my word. So the words of the Scripture, it will keep. And we will see that not only will it have the truth that it did have under Sardis, Herbert Armstrong did uh, regenerate or restore some things to the church of God that Church of God's seventh day did not have, such as the holy days and various other things, the mystery of God, the true plan of salvation and how it's carried out in the holy days. And there's 18 things that uh, he and they today say he restored. And they thought that that was all things. But you and I have learned a lot of things since then, haven't we? I haven't listed them all. But there are things that we right here in a small group have learned that the rest of the church simply does not know or will reject. Now, we're not the only ones, I'm sure, that have learned some things. I'm sure others have as well, found things in the Bible that we just simply overlooked and didn't see. I don't know who or where, but I'm sure that's true. But I just jotted some down here just before coming up. Uh, Passover day. We now understand how it's to be kept as a seven-day festival. The Passover service itself, and getting the bread and the wine and the foot washing in the correct order, as Luke said. Uh, the calendar. Most of the church today still don't understand the calendar. Even those who say they have the godly calendar still have very little understanding of how the heavens actually work. Uh, Purim. Who in the church of God keeps Purim? Uh, the fasts of Zechariah, holy day understanding. We've seen a great deal of increase in understanding, uh, particularly atonement. I don't remember having it preached, at least not widely and not officially, that that represented the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, that was almost unheard of. But it's clear now in Scripture of the heavenly Jerusalem that is coming at the beginning of the millennium. I don't know of any other group that understands that. Uh, Emmanuel. How many have accepted the fact that we are to use the name at the end time of Emmanuel? Prophesied. Who knows where the promised land is? Who knows where the true Zion is? Who knows where the true Jerusalem is? Those are major restorations, okay? Okay. What else did I get here? Uh, how many understand where Ephraim is in Manasseh, truly? There are some here and there I know of who have come to see that we, this nation is Ephraim and the United Kingdom is Manasseh. But most of them haven't. Some have. Uh, how to count Pentecost when it falls on a Saturday night. There are so many, many things that we understand that we didn't 20 years ago. Things I understand that I didn't. So when they try to say that Herbert Armstrong was the Elijah to come uh, and he would restore all things, he simply didn't. He just simply didn't. Now he may have been a minor type of Elijah. We'll discuss that more later. But uh, he certainly didn't restore all things, and neither have we. I'm not trying to say we have. We still we learned some things just in the last week about who Sardis is, you know, so we're still learning. And others are as well. I just that just a few things that came to mind, and there are many more that we have learned, uh, maybe perhaps smaller things, but many things. So, keeping God's Word is something that those of Philadelphia will do, and they will try very hard not to let any Word of God fall to the ground but to restore them all, if at all possible. That will be a characteristic of Philadelphia, because it's something the end time Elijah will do. Okay, and have not denied my name. Now, there will come a time when God is salvation, Yahshua, or Yeshua, or Jesus, or whatever language you want to use, Yah, Yah, will not be the name the end-time church uses. They will say, God with us, because Christ says He will come and dwell with the Philadelphia church in the end time. I'll show you that shortly. Whether today or not I get to it, we'll see, but shortly. Because we need to understand who and what Philadelphia is, because it is coming out of the, the remains of Sardis, In the majority that is today of Laodicea, it is sandwiched between two churches that are told they're going into the tribulation and one that has died. But it has an open door set before it, will have kept his word and not denied his name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. That means they will be in the kingdom of God and those who have called themselves true believers will come and worship at their feet. So they will be part of the bride of Christ. Now that could include, in a larger sense, those who are physically Edomites who claim to be Jewish, and there are many millions of those today physically walking the earth. But they ultimately will worship before the feet of the Philadelphians. That would also include some who think they are part of the church of today who are not who have gone back to the synagogue of Satan or still have satanic Protestant doctrines, they too will be forced to come and worship at the feet of the true Philadelphians, whoever they may be. Now, this is always appeal to anyone who is in the church of God to be a Philadelphian, right? You know what? It still appeals to me. I would love to be there. I would love to be that. Part of what we're reading about right here, right now. And there are many people, including me, for decades, who thought I was. And then found out I wasn't. That I was a spewed particle of Laodicea or a piece of Sardis in the death throes kicking my last neither of which is very good. Now, I'd like to be redeemed from that in whatever way possible. So whether it be a physical Jew who will be converted ultimately in the millennium or the great white throne judgment, or whether it be someone who thinks they are of God, who truly are not, who will come and worship before the feet of the true Philadelphians. Behold, I come quickly. So this is again at the end. Uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea are at the end, just before the Great Tribulation, and go into it. And that means that Philadelphia is right there at the end as well however they may be identified. So hold fast what you have, that no man take your crown. And him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And we have already learned that the kingdom of God And the bride, in Revelation 21, are coming down with Christ to begin the millennium. And the Father and the Son will be the light of the temple. Uh, The earth is never going to be completely destroyed, as Ellen G. White, that Thyatirite, said. The scripture she quoted, where all men will die, says right after that, "...and few men left." (laughs) She was dishonest, she did not read everything in context, and left out what fit her theory. I don't have time to go into all of that doctrine right at this moment, but it's in the series on uh, How Exclusive is the Church, a nine-part series I did oh, back in the 90s, I guess it was, late 90s. In which much was learned. I've found out things and studying that out that I had no clue about before. Okay, so this Philadelphia must be somewhere. So let's examine some things. Now, I don't think that there's anything much really completely new to us here because I've talked about these things before and gone to these same scriptures in discussing many of the major prophecies of the Old Testament as well as the New. But I'd like to try to to put it all together in an understandable fashion so that we might better understand exactly where we are. Now, to anyone apart from the audience we have here today or on the radio or the, the Internet or the telephone, this would be something totally different than what they have ever heard. It isn't known among the churches of God. It just isn't known. They think they have already identified Philadelphia, first of all, as Worldwide Church of God. And then, having been scattered from that, they have identified themselves as Philadelphia and everybody else as Laodicean. So I'm telling you that there are very, very few in the church of God that remains today who understand who and what Philadelphia is, where they'll be, when they'll be, how they'll be, who will lead them, and what they'll do. They're living in the past, thinking Herbert Armstrong finished some things, or they are in a murky present, and many of them, are the remains of Sardis, or straight Laodicea. And there are none of them who are doing what it says Philadelphia will do, which has an open door to do it. So while this may in some respects be old hat to you, to 99.9 whatever percent of the church, it is something new and startling And unacceptable. Utterly unacceptable. Okay. Let's see what God says. I don't care what they say. Let's see what God says. That's all that matters. I think from here, probably the best place we could go would be Revelation 11. Well, let's let's go back for a moment to 10 and pick it up in verse 7. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So, the context here is of the very end of this age and the events leading up to the return of Christ, which will solve the mystery of God, showing that man can become immortal and become God. So this is the context we're speaking of. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. Now let's for a moment reflect on our view from the worldwide perspective 30 years ago. Hard to believe it's been that long, but it has. That is, that Herbert Armstrong would preach the gospel around the world as a witness, since he was, in our minds, the Elijah to come who would restore all things. And when he had finished preaching, he would die, and three and a half days later, Christ would return he even told me one time in 1981 that he was Zerubbabel I was just in a personal visit and I thought "Hmm, that's interesting I went home and studied the book of Haggai and first few chapters of Zechariah and thought well maybe so so my focus was that he was the one to fulfill all these end time prophecies right didn't you think that I did We'd go to a place of safety. Tribulation would start. Herbert and Ted would preach the gospel to the world as a witness. And the resurrection would occur. Now, I think we're about to understand something I hadn't thought of right here in what we're reading right now. And that is that we were brought forward thinking we, as a worldwide church of God, were going to carry through in a place of safety with our leaders teaching the world until the mystery of God was finished. Wasn't that our view? It's what was preached day in and day out, week after week. That was our worldview. That was our spiritual view. Notice this. The days of the voice of the seventh angel. That's pointing to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, of us being changed into immortality. So we were brought to that precipice, we thought, in worldwide. Right? We thought that was the finish of what we were doing. Is that the way it happened? No. No. Herbert and Ted Armstrong are both dead. They did not preach the gospel to all the world and then the end come, did they? We're about three decades after Herbert Armstrong died. Right? 86, 96, 06, 16. About 30 years. January 16th of 16 will be 30 years since he died. And the end has not come. Now, if he was truly the final Zerubbabel, I think he was a mild uh, fulfillment of it. But if he were the final and largest fulfillment of that, he should still be alive and he should die in the streets of Jerusalem and three and a half days later the mystery of God be finished. Right? Didn't happen that way. He's dead. He's gone. Everything basically that he did while he was here on this earth is also gone and dead withered and died. And the flotsam and jetsam and last kicking remains are still alive from what he did. Now let's read on. He says, take this little book. Verse 9, And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it up. I, I gobbled it up. I heard it. I listened. I, you know, uses physically eating as the analogy, but I think it's... You, you don't generally eat books. But the content of that upset his stomach. So I took it and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now at some point, we had had the book, and the book that we had read that we would last until Christ returned, and everything would be hunky-dory because we would be in a place of safety in Petra, if you will. And be there until Christ returned and the mystery of God was finished. But right after it mentions that in chapter 10, then it says, wait a minute, we got this other little book to consider. Okay? Things did not turn out the way we thought they would. The story has been different. And he said to me, now here's the substance of what he's trying to get across. Herbert Armstrong did not finish the work. He did not preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the income, which would have been sweet to us. But there's another part of the story that is quite bitter to us that we did not grasp at that time, and that is that we would have 30-plus years more. And that's kind of a bitter dose to realize. It didn't end when we thought it would in the way that we thought it would. Now, it's a sweet story when we consider what is to happen next in some ways. But getting there is pretty bitter. What did he say? He said to me, Here's the message of the little book. You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Oh, Herbert Armstrong didn't finish. It wasn't all done. The end hasn't come. We're not God now. We're 30 years and counting later. And it hasn't come. The church isn't done. We must preach again. There is a work beyond Herbert Armstrong that must be done. And it isn't being done by the floating particles in the vomit of Laodicean or in the kicking remains of Sardis. It has to come from another source. I never understood really what the little book was saying until this moment. But suddenly it comes clear. He was telling us, you were anticipating the first resurrection, and Herbert Armstrong would carry us through to the end, and we'd go to Petra, and there we'd be, and that would be the end of it, and we'd rise to meet Christ in the air. Done deal, wonderful. And then we get this little book that says, "Uh uh-uh, you got 30 years and more to wait. That's kind of bitter. Now, who's going to do it? Remember, they're going to have a door opened before them that no man can shut. Okay? Who would that be? Oh, you know. You're ahead of the story. But nobody else does. Or at least they don't understand how And where and when this is to come about. So let's understand. And if they ever have opportunity to hear what is being said today, maybe they will listen. Some will. Some will. won't be very many, but some will. (laughs) Right now, I'm already Judge Nutty, and I just got nuttier. So let's move on to nuttiest. It's okay. It's part of the story. And it has to be rehearsed. Okay, who is going, <clears throat> excuse me, who is going to preach again? Worldwide did what it could do and then it disappeared. Now we're awaiting someone to come along who will finish the story. Finish out the book. Let's just keep reading because God lays it out right here. And there was given me a reed like a rod. That is a form of measurement, like we'd use a tape measure today. They use the reed and the rod then and the cubit and that type of measuring stick. We've gotten modern and we roll ours up and we've got a thirty five footer we carry around on our belt, but it's it's a measuring device. So he handed me this measuring device and said, "...Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein." So to whomever he is speaking here, he's telling them they have a responsibility, a commission, a direction from God to do something. Now, let's see if we can figure out what it is they're supposed to do and who they are that are going to do it. Measure the temple of God. So they have to measure the church of God, Ephesians 2.20, we being the church and Christ being the chief cornerstone. And many other places that refer to the body of Christ, uh, the temple of God, whose bodies we are. So if you're going to measure on a spiritual level in the end time, you have to measure the church, represented by the temple of God, which he says is the church. And the altar. Now, what is the altar represented by? In the Old Testament, you had the altar, and Aaron was allowed in there once a year to the inner sanctum, if you will, the Holy of Holies. And he represented as did the rest of the Levites, the altar. They were the ones who tended to the tabernacle. They tended to the altar. They took care of the spiritual uh, part of worshiping God that was done in an organized fashion. Recall that they could not even talk to God in the Old Testament. It was not allowed. You could not pray to your Father in heaven in the Old Testament. I think we tend to forget that. Access to him was not even opened up until Christ died and the veil of the temple was opened. And through him, in his life and resurrection, we could now pray the Father. Up until then, you prayed to Melchizedek only, to Christ himself, when you prayed to the God of the Old Testament. And then Christ instructed His disciples when He was here that that was no longer to be the case. Now, He said, pray to your Father in heaven directly. And that He would be not the one you prayed to anymore, but He would be the mediator between you and the Father. So He opened it up that we could talk directly to our Father in heaven. Something prior to His death and resurrection that could not be done. And He, in that sense, stepped aside and says, Don't talk to me. Talk to Dad. Do it in my name, by my authority, through my sacrifice and resurrection. All our prayers go through Him directly to the Father. He's the go between. He's the one that says, Dad, I think you ought to hear that one. Oh, okay. I'll present that one's name to you for resurrection. Oh, okay. They're together. But do you realize that, in spite of all Protestant theology, there is not one verse in the New Testament anywhere that authorizes you to pray to Christ, to pray to Jesus? See, Protestantism basically denies the Father. And in in that sense, they deny the death and resurrection of Christ. They bypass the Father and still talk to Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Sad. But they deny the name of God, the Father, by still talking to Jesus. I had someone not too long ago tell me, well, I know it's in there and you can talk to Jesus. I said, show it to me. I know it's in there. Show it to me. If you know of a place, show it to me. I don't think you'll find one. I've read the whole thing back and forth many times, and I haven't found it yet. Not that I was particularly looking for it, but it's just not there. And it would be a revelation and something restored if you can show that. No, we pray the Father. Pray in this manner, our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what he told us to do. Anyway, he says measure the temple, that would be the whole thing, the whole church of God, and the altar, so then he splits it, those who represent the church officially, such as the Levites did in the Old Testament, and the New Testament ministry does in the New Testament. Some he appointed to those jobs for the perfecting of the saints, and we all grow toward being God. But take care of the spiritual things. And them that worship therein. So whoever he's talking to, who must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, Our first given instruction here to measure the temple of God, to check it out, to see how big it is, to see what shape it is, its condition, a measurement of quality and quantity and everything, and the ministry, and we'll see that that is going to be a very big part of it when we get to the story of Elijah and the people. So they are to assess the situation, the place, the time, everything about the the end time church. And then it says, first of all, notice that the focus is on the church itself, nothing else there. And then there's something he says to leave out. Okay? What does he say to leave out? But the court which is without the church leave out and measure it not for it is given to the gentiles and the holy city shall they tread under foot 42 months so this is speaking to someone who must again take the message to many nations and tongues and peoples but they are told to deal with the church And not the world. Because God is giving over the world to the beast, to the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, 42 months. Now anyone who is trying to preach to the world today is working at cross purposes to God. Anyone who is trying to do a worldwide work to convert people to the truth, to God, is trying to do something that God is not in, He has not authorized, and He will not bless. That includes any of the scattered groups of the Church of God today. Almost to a group. They think that Herbert Armstrong did not finish his job, but they must finish it. We must hurry, because they admit, if this preaching to all the nations was the job, and in the end would come, the mystery would be solved. They admit it didn't get done. Now, many of them still cling to the idea that Herbert Armstrong was the last Elijah. He was a minor fulfillment. He did restore some things, but he couldn't be the final fulfillment because the things that he did were not restoring everything, nor did the end come when he died. And here we are 30 years later and counting. So they cling to that old idea like they cling to the idea they were Philadelphian. And I clung to all those decades in Worldwide Church of God. Hard to get out of the rut you've been in and the way you've been thinking all those years, isn't it? Those who are printing and broadcasting are having very, very little success. A few show a little bit of interest and they come in the front door and then they go out the back door two or three weeks later. There's nothing here for me. There's no real growth. And in fact, it's slowly diminishing. People fall away, people die, people get bored, people go home, whatever. There's nothing viable, there's nothing dynamic. There's nothing really happening in the churches of God today. So they have misassessed, misidentified even who they are and what they ought to be doing. And having very little success because God isn't blessing it. Did he bless Herbert Armstrong's work? It grew and grew and grew like Topsy. And it went around the world. But it did not go as a witness against the evil of the world... It went as a softer, gentler, calling message. And it accomplished Matthew 28:19 and 20 like Christ said the church should do. It made disciples of many peoples and many nations. That is the work that God assigned him to do. It is the work he accomplished. And when he finished and when he died, he did finish the job God gave him to do and then he died. He called many. And the church grew to about 150,000. And that was the end of his work. Now, people are trying to finish his work for them, and and they still don't understand he finished his work. God didn't start something in him that he did not finish. How many people in the Church of God do you think will believe what I just said? Not very many. It's in here. It's history. It's 2020 hindsight. He just did what he did. Now, that's kind of bitter to swallow. But he's told someone here who is ultimately scheduled to prophesy again to many nations and peoples and tongues, in the beginning of his instruction to them, he tells them, take care of the church, measure it, leave out the world. How many did you know who understand and believe that statement? I don't know of any. Except you. Leave out the court of the Gentiles. And they'll tread for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and days clothed in sackcloth. So, whoever he's instructing here, he says, forget about the world. Your duty is to the church. And then somewhere in there, At some point, he's going to give them power to begin to preach to the world. I'll give power to them, and they'll prophesy 1260 days. Now, let's see who they are. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, what does that mean? There is only one reference in the Bible, other than this one, to that. Only one. Zechariah 4, no, Zechariah 4, verse 14. And we'll get to that. And it identifies who they are and what they will do. So, this is a reference backward to Zechariah 4.14. Even in my margin, someone recognized that, but that isn't mentioned in Genesis, it's not mentioned in Isaiah, it's not mentioned in Luke, there's only one reference to what is stated right there, and that's in Zechariah 4. And it is very, very important, because as we get into that story, we're going to see that their attention is directed to the church, not the world. Now, verse 4, that was 4. Now let's go to verse 5. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Does that sound like an open door to you? (laughs) Anybody tries to stop them, they're zapped into that. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. That's uh, three and a half years, 42 months, and we will see later that one of these is described as the Elijah of the end time, and if you go back to the original Elijah, he shut off the rain for three and a half years. So the story of the past is the story of the future, and we will examine it in detail so that we better understand what is ahead for us if we're part of this. So they can shut the rain off, like Elijah did, and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses. Malachi 4 tells us he will send us Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration we'll get to in Matthew. Who came up there in Christ's vision of the future? Moses and Elijah. Elijah. Here, he states first a work of Elijah, shutting off the rain, and then a work of Moses, turning water into blood. And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So they also have power to bring plagues, just as Moses did, to Egypt, which represents sin and the whole world, is what Mitzrayim became a type of. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now, what did it say about Philadelphia back there in Revelation 3? He said, He would open a door that no man could shut and He would have shut a door that no man could open. So, He gives these two witnesses an open door that nobody can shut, and they can do plagues, and fire will come from their mouth and destroy anyone who tries to hurt them. And then when God shuts that door, their work is finished, and the world kills them. Graveyard dead. The streets of Jerusalem. When they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, we'll see when we get into the story that the true Jerusalem, which is over here, not in the Middle East, and Christ was crucified here, not there, That land does not fit the Bible story whatsoever. The geography doesn't. The history doesn't. They can't find any evidence of the Israelites there prior to 1600 A.D. And on and on the story goes. Read Deuteronomy 8.7 where it talks about all the things that God would give us in the promised land. Fountains and rivers and lakes and water and iron and brass that we can dig from the ground. And over there, you don't have that. You have one little creek they call the Jordan. And you have no iron, no brass, very little water, and nothing but is promised of the promised land. Here in America, we have everything he named in greater abundance than anyone else on the face of the earth. Double the blessing of the firstborn Ephraim, whom he made the firstborn son, in Jeremiah 31, changing the birth order from Reuben to Ephraim. Now, the true Jerusalem then will have been built, according to Daniel 9. An order will be given, and 70 weeks later it will be finished, and the abomination of desolation will be set up in it. (coughs) So the temple as we'll get to, and Jerusalem will have been restored by that time. But it will be defiled. It won't be destroyed again, because the Scripture says it won't be destroyed again. But it will be defiled by the beast and the false prophet. And they will control it for three and one-half years. So it will become, spiritually, Sodom and Egypt. The Gentile will set his government up there. Wow. I used up all my time and then some. Let's see if we can finish. They say I've got ten minutes left on the tape. Let's see if I can get through this. Uh, And then the dwell on the earth, verse 10, shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets, that's one of their offices, is prophet, tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. That will be knee-knocking fear there. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended up to the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Interesting, 7,000 would be slain of men. I think the number in the Philadelphia Church of God, when we get to it, can be be probably defined as 7,000 people. The beast and false prophet will try for three and a half years to destroy those 7,000. And when this happens, God will kill 7,000 of them. Never thought of it before. But there it is. Elijah said seven, or God told Elijah there's seven thousand that haven't bowed their knee to bail. Paul quoted that again in the New Testament. It's the work of Elijah. This is the work of Elijah and Moses. And the number probably fits. And especially then when you consider God will man for man, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, seven thousand. Interesting thought second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and then the resurrection is described here, right after they come up, and reward to the prophets are given, and so on. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, verse 19, uh, and the ark of the testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. So... Let's stop for there, or stop there, since I'm way over time anyway. I got kind of carried away here uh, with the story and a couple of thoughts that i would never even had before uh, that I think are coming clear. So there is much to learn about the Philadelphia Church of God, and we've just just started.